Well, I don't know how many of you are fans of Antiques Roadshow, the, the TV show. Every now and then I seem to land on it when I'm watching maybe some home fix-it show or woodworking show on PBS. Sometimes Antiques Roadshow will be on shortly after, and I'll watch it for a little bit. and watch it just long enough to find the guy who thinks he has a million-dollar lamp from great-great-great-grandma, and it's, it's worth nothing. You know, he, he thought that it had this history, and it doesn't. And, and, of course, there are others who are there, and they're surprised by what they have and what it's worth. Uh, it's kind of rare, because if you're showing up for Antiques Roadshow, then, then chances are you think you have something. You think it's worth something. But, but every now and then, there are people that find this thing in the closet, or find it up in a, in a, a storage shed somewhere at the top of a, of a heap, and then they realize that they have something worth a lot of money, a surprise treasure. Well, I sort of feel like I found a surprise treasure this week in Psalm 20. Psalm 20. So if you, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 20 with me. And I want to look at this often overlooked psalm today. It's not one of the famous ones. Psalm 23 is no doubt the most famous of the psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. We have other ones as Christians that we go to. We know there are certain numbers. Perhaps if you've been a Christian for a while, or even just here for the last few weeks in our study of the book of Psalms, you might know that Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and 119 are all Scripture psalms. They tell us about God's Word. And so those are more famous, you could say. Psalm 20 is not one of the famous ones. It's not often preached on. In fact, Charles Spurgeon preached a lot of sermons in his lifetime, but he never preached a message from Psalm 20. Spurgeon's sermons are printed in these fat volumes, 63 volumes in all. And usually Spurgeon has a message or two or three or four sometimes on a specific passage, and there's none, none on Psalm 20 that we, that we know of. But Psalm 20 is a unique psalm. And it's an important psalm for a variety of reasons. One reason would be it's a psalm of blessing. It's a psalm of what we might call benediction. Before we even read it, just look down in your Bibles and notice that the first five verses begin with may, may the Lord, may he, may he, may you, may we. This is the form of benediction or blessing that we see oftentimes in the Bible. It's well-wishing, but it's well-wishing with an intention of prayer as well. It mingles well-wishing with prayer. A classic prayer form is directly talking to God, right? Addressing Him. And this isn't a typical prayer form. May He, may you, but still the same. It's prayer-like. It's well-wishing and prayer-like, and may is often the word that gives it away that we're talking about one of these things, a benediction or a blessing. I think it's a kind of scripture, a kind of thing in the Christian life and in the experience of God's people that's easily overlooked and easily neglected thing, at least in, in our church circles, in our church tradition. You might be more familiar with the Arianic blessing of Numbers 6. Where there, God told Moses to tell Aaron, the high priest, 
that Aaron should bless the people of Israel like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. A great thing to memorize, a great thing to say over your kids, perhaps at bedtime. Um, A good thing to, to write in a card to someone, perhaps. It's probably the most famous blessing, but there are other blessings in the Bible. And there are little hints of blessings all through the Psalms. But Psalm 20 and Psalm 72 as well, those two are really benediction psalms, blessing psalms, because they have multiple blessings like we've already seen just with that word may, multiple blessings in them. So that's one thing that makes Psalm 20 unique, that it's a blessing psalm and we need to recover this thing of benediction and blessing others, mingling prayer with it. Another thing that makes Psalm 20 unique, a real surprise treasure, is how multi-layered it is. It's multi-layered. It is a stack of Bible pancakes. And you don't see it at first. That's where the treasure is. That's why it's a surprise. And I'm going to ask you right now just to tuck that away, that there are layers to Psalm 20. We'll get to that later on. We should note up front, though, that that's one reason why this is a unique psalm and an important one. And it's an extremely practical one, too. It really does deal with the theme of help, like so many psalms do. So many psalms talk about our need, calling on the Lord, Him answering, Him doing something, and then praise to Him for it. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read Psalm 20. To the choir master, it's a psalm of David, And verse 1 says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven, the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fail, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Well, if you notice in your sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, I want to talk about this psalm in a variety of ways with five themes and five layers. Five themes that kind of survey the landscape across the top. And we'll just do that quickly to see these these themes. But then we need to sort of do a cross-section and see how there are layers in these psalms, uh, sorry, in this psalm and among these themes. So five themes, five layers, quickly with the themes as we run through these, just to tuck them away so we'll be able to talk, to, talk about them and refer to them as we think about the layers. The themes are, the, are these. May you get help, number one. May you get help, verses one and two. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send help 
It's the name of the God of Jacob that David here calls upon. The name of the God of Jacob. The name specifically being, well, uh, a part for the whole. So name in Hebrew poetry is the whole person. And when it says we trust in the name of the Lord, it's not that we know the secret name and if we say it at the gates of heaven, we'll get to go in. We trust in his name means we trust in who he is and what he's done and everything he's done and what he's promised. And this is the name of the God of Jacob. Why God of Jacob? Why pick Jacob up? Well, this is shorthand for what you see oftentimes earlier in the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's used as a way of saying the God of our fathers, the God of old, the God of the promises, the God of all the stories. That's the one we're banking on. That's the one that we have, the eternal God, the God who's revealed himself to Abraham and Moses and and all these here in our Bibles, one after another. May he send help from his sanctuary, support from Zion. May he come right from where he lives, where he's holy, where he shows his glory. So may you get help. That's the first theme. The second theme is may you find acceptance. Verse 3, acceptance. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. You have to remember this is written in the Old Testament when they did this sort of thing. They did sacrifices. They did worship offerings to the Lord, burning things and and, and doing this, putting this there and bowing here and and saying these prayers. Religion then was more outward in its, its expression. And burnt sacrifices, offerings were, were a symbol of God's worship, but also a symbol of sacrifice and the removal of sin. So, there are some in the Old Testament who made sacrifices and it didn't go so well for them. They, they didn't have acceptance alongside their sacrifice. And, and David here is, is instead talking about offerings and sacrifices which are accepted, which do please the Lord. We'll just stop there and we'll talk more about acceptance and sacrifice in a bit. The third theme, though, is may you have fulfillment. Fulfillment. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. It seems like a great benediction, right? A great blessing. A great thing to write in a card to a friend. May the Lord give you what you want. Well, it doesn't quite mean just that. It's not quite a carte blanche blessing. It's not sort of fill in the blank hope and prayer. We'll come back to that. But notice this theme of fulfillment. And then fourth, we have a theme of joyful praise. May we joyfully praise him, verse 5 says. In light of his salvation, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, may we set up our banners. Banners in these days were used by armies. The armies around Israel had banners and On these banners, they put up the names of their gods, many gods, their false gods. Well, Israel used banners as well. They used multiple banners, but they have one God, one name, one God. And this picture of setting up the banner would mean victory. So, let's praise him. 
Let's praise him for his salvation. And when we praise him for his salvation, when we shout for joy like that, let's lift up our victory banners. And then a fifth theme, may we completely trust him. Completely trust him. If you notice, there's no may, may we, that begins verse 6. So we're kind of cheating here. But, but you can see that verses 6 through 8 talk about confidence, talk about trust. And, and really, they pick at this thing of what we trust in. Really, verses 6 through 8 give the foundation for what's come before, these blessings and these hopes and these prayers that have come before. So now it's verse 6, a confession of confidence that the Lord saves his anointed. That would mean the king. He will answer him, specifically the king, from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And then we have a real concrete test case, verses 7 through 8. It's almost like it asks the question, what do you think of horses? Kind of a weird question, weird test case, right? What do you think of horses? But look at verse 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We don't. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Even big horses and solid chariots, they collapse and fail. But we rise and stand upright. Obviously not because our legs are stronger, because the Lord is on our side. Now, I want to camp out here with this word picture of horses in chariots and what we trust in and what we shouldn't trust in because it's important. And I think it's really important for us to ask, what are horses? Specifically, what are your horses? What are the things that you rely on, depend upon? You see, it's not that, it's not that we don't use good things. Because horses and chariots were good things for battle in those days. It's not that we don't use good things. The Lord uses means for accomplishing his plans, right? Sometimes he uses the horse in battle. Sometimes he uses a chariot in battle. But, but it does mean that we don't trust in these things that there's perceived strength and definitive strength. You see, in these days, there was a great benefit to fighting a war with horses and with chariots as opposed to being on foot. Scholars, archaeologists speculate that Israel really didn't use horses and chariots until about the time of Solomon. And then, like all things Solomon, it just went gung-ho. He really got into the chariots and and hence, war was pretty easy in those days. Before, though, Israel fought with spears and swords and looked to take advantage of things like hills and rough terrain where horses and, and, and chariots didn't work so well. But imagine if you don't have horses and you don't have chariots and you see an army of horses and chariots, and maybe you don't know enough about battle to know that that's a huge advantage. That's something like the Abrams tank or something. Whatever it is that America has that other armies of this world don't have, that would be the equivalent in those days, David's time of horses and chariots. If you don't have those, you see horses and chariots and you think, oh boy, if only, if only. Or you get them and you think, now, all right, now we got it. It's the money. We're 
we're going to win this thing. Well, God showed, not just here in the Psalms with this picture of, of horses and chariots that we don't trust, he showed in the stories before this how much he wants to show his power in weakness, right? So, so many times there's a battle and God gives this pep talk to his people. Uh, did you notice the numbers? Not in your favor. In fact, I'm going to cut out 10,000. There you go. Just now you, few thousand, you go fight this battle. Or sending Joshua around the city, just blowing a trumpet. I'm going to make you walk around the wall blowing a trumpet. Now, if you're a, if you're a soldier and that's the game plan, what? Go around for seven days blowing a trumpet? Come on, really? And what happened at the end of the seven days? The walls came tumbling down, the song says, right? We know that. God was victorious. So often he wants to show his power in his people, not by giving them horses and chariots and things strong to depend on, but by making it clear that they must depend on. On the Lord, and that's why it's a repeated theme in the Psalms. It's in Psalm 20, like we read, but let me just give you some other references as well. Psalm 33, verse 17, where it says that the war horse is a literally, it's a stupid thing to trust in. It's a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it can't rescue. Now it can help. It doesn't mean it's bad to have a mighty horse for battle. What it means is. Whatever the Lord's given you, if the Lord's on your side, that's all the difference in the world. The question is, what do you perceive to be strong? What do you perceive to be definitive in the battle? Psalm 44, verse 3, we're told it wasn't by their own sword that they won the land. It wasn't by their own arm that they were saved, but it was God's right hand, God's arm. It was even the light of his face because he delighted in them. That's why they won. So verse 6 of Psalm 44 says, I do not trust in my bow, and my sword cannot save me. What's your sword? What's your bow? What's your chariot that you're tempted to trust? What, what is it that if the Lord took it away, you would think, oh, I couldn't survive. I, I couldn't make it. The Lord must be our everything. Psalm 147 says his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So completely trust him. And then the psalm ends, if you notice, verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Just basically repeating what was said in verse 1, which tells us that these are brackets and everything in the middle is about this theme. Calling on the Lord, the Lord saving. Now verse 9, mentioning the king. Okay, so those are five themes. Five themes across the landscape at the top of this psalm. Now let's dig into a layer one at a time and see how these themes get fleshed out. Five layers. The first would be this. God's people in every age should pray like this. Psalm 20 should influence how we pray and what we want, what we're aiming for in life. These should be our wants and, and our wishes and what we wish for others. 
It's how we should want to be prayed for by others. It's what we should communicate to them as we seek to bless them and pray for them. I'll come back to this in a little bit, but let's just note here that I think for most of us, this is probably what we think of when we think of applying a psalm like this. This is what we do with a psalm like this. We take a direct line from the psalm to my heart and life and say, okay, what is this psalm? Tell me about God and his plan, and what does it mean for me, we say. What, what does it tell me to do? How does it change things? How do I think differently because of it? And, and by the way, that's a good thing. Those are good questions. Those are biblical questions. And that's the one you already know. You already know to see a psalm that talks about trouble and think about your own trouble. To see a psalm that talks about help and think about how you need the Lord to help. But the Bible has layers to it. So that's not the deepest layer. Let's dig down. Second layer. This is a prayer specifically for the king's victory in battle. You have to get to context, right? You have to see when this was written, why it was written, by whom it's written. We're told it's written by David. And this is a prayer specifically for a king's victory in battle. Remember we saw in verse 6, the Lord saves his anointed. That's the king. All right, the saving might of his right hand has to do with battle, battle victory, right? That's why chariots and horses are mentioned here. They're not talking, chariots and, and horses aren't referring to a, how you get to the market, right? They're equivalent of cars. No, horses and chariots are, these are military vehicles in their day. So this is all military. This is all battle. This is all kingly. These are what we call royal psalms. Royal psalms. There are several. Psalm 20 is certainly one of them. Psalms that are not just written by David and reflect his own godliness and prayer and praise to the Lord. Those you can more immediately just draw a line from that passage to your own heart and life. Like Psalm 63 is one of those. But there are these other psalms like Psalm 20. We call them royal psalms because they are so much about a king and about his kingdom that we have to tune into that specifically. There's a sense in which Psalm 20 applies to me today and we can benefit from it and even pray it. But there's another sense in which these well-wishing prayers are based on certain promises and hence have very specific requests. So you notice, as you look down, Psalm 20, and you see words like help. That help is specific, isn't it? This is a military context. This is a king writing for success. And so the help is, is specific. The trust is specific. The sacrifices even are specific. They're those that precede the battle. And hence, the fulfillment is specific. Remember, verse 4 said, May the Lord grant you the, the desires of your heart. Now, this is talking about a king and his desires, which 
might mean more concubines or better food or, you know, fabric shipped in from China, something like that. Or more likely, it's referring to the desires of his heart for victory, right? That's the plan that he's hoping will be fulfilled based on very specific promises and aiming at very specific requests. If you want to see an example of this unfold, uh, you can look at Second Chronicles 20, where there you can see before a battle, they would pray like this. They would, they would do worship, they would do sacrifices, and they would pray well-wishing benediction prayers that God would grant favor to the king, there would be success. So David writes Psalm 20 like, like 2 Chronicles 20 as a song to be sung by the priests and the people before a new battle would take place. Look also at Psalm 21 because it's a sister psalm. They go together. Psalm 20 is pre-battle. Psalm 21 is post-battle, post-battle thankfulness. So it says, verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. Salvation in this context isn't like we think as New Testament Christians of salvation. Salvation here is salvation in victory, salvation at, in the battlefield. It says, you've given him his heart's desire, verse 2 of Psalm 21. You see, that's just like Psalm 20, verse 4. May he get his heart's desire. Verse 2 of Psalm 21 says, you have given him his heart's desire. You haven't withheld the request of his lips. You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. That's not eternal life. Here in this context, that's not eternal life like we think of it. That's, I came home from battle alive. Right? You gave me life. And then look at the end of verse 4. Length of days forever and ever. Now it gets a, a little bit of a head scratcher. Verse 5, his glory is great through your salvation. Okay, glory is great, sure. David was great. Splendor in majesty you bestow on him. Well, that's a bit lofty. Splendor and majesty are usually used of God in the Psalms. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Some of this sounds like it sure fits David quite well. And some of it sounds awful lofty to be applied to David, doesn't it? Do you see that? It sounds a little bit too much. Because though David was a good king... He was far from perfectly righteous. You know the stories. David was an amazing commander-in-chief of the army, but his wars never really finished. God promised in the Joshua days that eventually there'd be peace on all sides. That doesn't happen until after David, if it ever happens at all. Especially with David, it's one fight after another. Just go back and read First and Second Samuel. And then after David, you know, there's a moment of peace with his son Solomon, but the writing is on the wall with this guy. And it's downhill from there, isn't it? I mean, it's quickly downhill. So the succession of kings after David, you have 
an occasional good one here or there, but then the next one's worse than any before. It seems sad, depressing, doubtful, especially because God had given such great and big promises for that kingdom and for a line of kings from David himself. And then it gets even worse when you get to something called the exile, where God judged his people and removed them from their land to Babylon for 70 plus years. And when that takes place, there's no king. And there's no king afterwards. They come back to the land, and there's no king. There has not been a king of Judah since then. So you can see, feel even how disheartening this would be. But then you have prophets like Zechariah, one of the last prophets before the New Testament. In Zechariah 9.9, we get this. Rejoice greatly. Be encouraged. Don't be sad about this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, which is exactly what took place in John chapter 12, where Jesus entered Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy on a donkey. He came on a donkey. He's this king talked about in Zechariah 9 9. He's the king that the wise men went looking for in Matthew 2, 2. Who is this this one born king of the Jews? Where is he that we might go and worship him? He's the king. So Psalm 20 is a prayer specifically for the king's victory in battle. And at first glance or the first layer in its historical context is David, but... There's one to come, which leads to the third layer here. Jesus, the true warrior king, embodies and fulfills what Psalm 20 was praying for and wishing upon God's people. Jesus is the true warrior king. He's the final David. He's the king that was awaited from long ago. So you can think of how Jesus fulfills Psalm 20. Jesus prayed throughout his ministry. He asked for help on multiple times, and he got help. Oh, I know on on one level, Jesus doesn't need help because he's God, and that's different than David. That already makes him better than David. On another level, he is of the line of David. He is of the seed of the woman. He is a human being, and hence he fulfills those requests for help that, that David talked about. So he got help. When he was fasting 40 days in the wilderness, we're told that angels came and ministered to him there. He got Psalm 20 help. When he was tempted in the garden, this is the very thing that Satan questioned. Go ahead, throw yourself off and see if God protects you. See if he helps you. And Jesus says, well... You're not going to tempt God. You don't do that. That's not how it works. Oh, but he does protect and he does help. The fact that I won't throw myself off a cliff to show it doesn't mean that he won't help. In fact, Jesus was helped 
finally, completely in the resurrection, wasn't he? I mean, there in God's power, he was raised to life. We're told in Romans 8 that Jesus was raised by the Spirit. So seeing Jesus in Psalm 20 isn't just a clever thing. This is a linchpin thing where we see God's unswerving commitment to his son, capital S, son. Yes, David was a kind of son, according to Psalm 2, but but there was a greater son, an eternal son, God's true forever son, Jesus. And Jesus' victory came about in an ironic way. Wasn't on a battlefield, wasn't with sword in hand, only blood involved was his own. His victory came through suffering. His, his win actually came through what seemed to be loss. His death, his self-sacrifice, motivated by his meekness, not his swagger. His death and his resurrection though it didn't look like it at first, were in fact mightily and gloriously victorious. The resurrection confirms what the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, set to accomplish. Where there Jesus was paying for sin. There Jesus was taking the punishment. There Jesus was being a sacrifice. And we know that that was a sacrifice accepted because God raised him on the third day. So the Bible, the New Testament, talks about Jesus' death and resurrection as victorious in a lot of different ways, a lot of different places. One would be Colossians 2.15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are spiritual rulers and authorities. Demons, Satan, he disarmed them. He took their swords away. Come on, hand him over. That's it, you're done. You can go walk around. You can go try to threaten people, try to be a bully, sure. But I'm taking away your weapons. He disarmed them through the cross. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. Which is the fulfillment of that first gospel promise in Genesis 3. Where God told there the the serpent that one day he would be crushed. By the seed of the woman, his head would be dealt a fatal bruise, it says in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the true warrior king, even if his victory comes in an ironic way. But his victory is better than David's. He's better than any of David's. He's better than all of David's combined. Because David's victories against ungodly nations in the Old Testament are really there as illustrations of what's to come. The New Testament tells us they're like shadows. So that word shadows is used in a variety of places about things like sacrifices. The Old Testament had sacrifices, but it was a shadow of what's really to come. The true sacrifice who's Christ. The old sacrifices didn't really take away sin. Christ did, once for all. The Old Testament Sabbath was a shadow, where it said once a week, you must have a day of rest. You can't even pick up a stick in work for the Lord on that day. 
you have to rest. And Christ comes and he says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's the Sabbath. We rest in him spiritually speaking. And also, certain people of the Old Testament were like shadows. David's one of them. David's one of the biggest. David lets us know something bigger is coming. And that's why Psalm 21 has things that sound like David and sound also like they're too big for David's britches, too big for his shoes, too big for him to fulfill. So Christ was helped. Notice those themes that we went through already. Christ was accepted. His sacrifice was accepted. Hebrews tells us that over and over. He fulfilled the plan. Remember that word, fulfillment? May God fulfill your plans, your heart's desire. Well, Jesus' heart's desire and the Father's plan came together in one and they were fulfilled. So there's a sense in which the wishes and prayers of Psalm 20 have already been answered. We don't have to pray for the king like they did in those old days. The king lives. It's sure. We don't have to pray for the next battle. The king is won. He's victorious. Oh, we're still having some spats here and there with principalities and powers, but in principle, it's as good as done. We don't have to pray that he'll keep living or that the throne will endure. We know it will. He lives. David's son is eternal. And so he goes on on that throne forever endeavor. Which leads to another layer, a fourth layer. All those in Jesus, all those who through faith have embraced him and his saving work, have the fruits of his victory. They share in the spoils of what he did and, and what he won. So listen to these amazing promises from the New Testament about what we have in Christ because of his work. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You have resurrection power at work in you, not because of your strength, not because you've earned it, but because Christ and what he's done. Later on in Romans 8, Paul says, In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So now, death and life and angels and rulers, whatever the threat is, it doesn't matter. None of it can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Death has been swallowed up in victory now. He mocks death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Jesus was raised. And because he was raised and because we're in him, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more amazing New Testament promise. 1 John 5, verse 4 says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Which sounds a little New Age positive thinking. 
Like that your faith can overcome the world? We just have to believe for change to happen. Well, that's not what 1 John 5 means. Faith is trusting in someone else's overcoming. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in the one who overcomes. And through that faith, we overcome. So again, we can see these themes pop up in this layer, can't we? We don't just have help for a battle. We don't just have protection for a battle. We have help in Christ, which is saving and eternal. We've been protected not from that bad army or this soldier. We've been protected from the wrath of God, from eternal judgment. We've been shielded like that because of Christ's acceptance. Now we're accepted because his offering was accepted. Now we praise him for salvation. Remember in verse 5, David said, oh, shout for joy over his salvation. And that probably just meant praise God that they won the battle and came home safe. And now we say, oh, praise God for his, Jesus' salvation. And praise God for our salvation in him. We don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in trying to earn our way to God. We don't trust in this religious exercise. We don't trust in this discipline over here. We don't trust in this resolve. We don't trust in our, in our ancestry or what our parents taught us. We don't trust that because they're right with God, we'll be right with God. We trust in him, in Jesus. And lastly, our wants and prayers then should be shaped by his victory. Now we finally come full circle. Back to what we said was the first layer. That Psalm 20 tells us how we should think and what we should want and, and how we should pray and pray for each other and how we should bless each other. Yes and amen. But now it means more than it ever did before. When Psalm 20 verse 4 says, May the Lord fulfill your plans. We know that the New Testament talks about a fulfillment that's way bigger than us and way bigger than my wants for tomorrow, circumstantially speaking. May the Lord fulfill your plans didn't mean for David that they would win the lottery or that they would just have good food and life would be easy. No, even for David it meant that it was God-centered and rooted in certain promises. And in the New Testament that becomes even clearer. So that Jesus tells us to pray like this. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's what should shape all of our wants, all of our goals and aims, and all of our prayers. And that's why we pray like Jesus did. Not my will, but yours be done. The Apostle Paul prays like this too. He might be surprised to see Paul pray like this in his letters. He prays for what God has already promised. And he prays for spiritual things. Those are his emphases. If we did a poll, I think most of us would have to say, and at times I would say so myself, that I pray for more physical things than spiritual things. And I tend to pray for what God hasn't promised 
more than what he's already promised. It doesn't mean we can't pray for physical things, and it doesn't mean we can't pray for what he hasn't already promised. But I think Paul's priorities should be ours because I think they reflect Jesus' model for prayer. I think that model for prayer is rooted in this great big plan that goes from David to Jesus. Well, before David as well, but we're starting with David today in Psalm 20. Now, with all that in mind, let me ask you to bow. And I want to read some of the New Testament's blessings, benedictions. Remember, Psalm 20 is a benediction, a blessing. So let me close by reading how the New Testament wishes that we would be blessed, and hence how it instructs us about how to bless others, and how it instructs us, hence, to pray for each other. Notice the priorities as I read these. Romans 15, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. God wants harmony of us. You can pray about that. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. God wants you to be happy and at peace in faith and assurance. May the power of the Holy Spirit abound in you in hope and may the God of peace be with you. He's promised that and all the more reason why we can bless it upon others and pray for it in them. In Colossians 1, Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience and joy and for the giving of thanks to the Father. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, May our God and Father and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. We want to be close to you so that you increase and abound in love for one another. That he might establish your hearts in holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely to keep you for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it's may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father grant you every comfort and establish your heart in every good work and word. In 2 Thessalonians 3, it's may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In Hebrews 13, it's may the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead equip you with everything good to do his will, to do what's pleasing in his sight. 1 Peter 1, may grace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that short book, Jude, succinctly says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Oh, that we would recover benedictions, blessings, and that we would pray like this. Let's thank God for his plan. Let's thank God for his word which reveals his plan. Let's thank him for the layers in his plan 
and in his word. Let's trust Christ. Let's trust his victory. That's where there's real help. If you don't know the Savior, come to him today. Believe and call out to him. There's real help in him. And in him we can live in confidence. We can daily call out to the same God, the God of Jacob, the God of the old days, the God of the promises, the God of the great stories, the God who's still at work today. May we praise him for his salvation with shouts of joy and may we proclaim in this world the true king has sacrificed himself for us. He's died in our place and and it's been accepted with God the Father. He's now victorious. And he's coming again. He's the king who's returning. Who's returning.